Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. Today's guest is the comedian Josie Long. Josie started early, and I mean early. She's been performing stand-up since she was 14 years old, and by 17 won the BBC New Comedy Award. She was the first woman to be nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award three times, and is the co-founder of the education charity Arts Emergency. Josie is also a regular on those terrifying panel shows where you just know that you'd think of the smart thing to say when you're on the bus home if at all. She's written for TV, radio and stage and has now turned her hand to short stories with Because I Don't Know What You Mean and What You Don't, a funny, dark, poignant and occasionally jaded look at life. The idea that actually when we're like 60, 70, 80, the dream is that like you have this wonderful repository of experience and understanding and it just gets bigger and bigger. It's like wonderful. Josie and I are both Scottish emigres, so we met up in her publisher's atmospheric 16th century office in Edinburgh's Old Town to talk about everything from house prices to climate change, how hormones and ADHD affect pregnancy and perimenopause. Clue, it's not that great. Breaking free of diet culture, living in a two-comedian household, and why she hopes she'll still be performing stand-up at 80. Oh, and she shares her secret past as a fake tarot reader. Josie, thank you for coming on The Shift. Oh, thanks for having me. We are in, like, a book-lined dungeon in the old town. (laughs) I can't remember when I last did one in person. So this is, like, such a treat to have a real person. I could actually touch you. Yeah, and I'm not going to glitch at any point. (laughs) I stop speaking and they say it all really quickly. Yeah, you'll suddenly freeze, but the words will still be coming, but your mouth won't be moving. (laughs) If I can do that in person, I'm really (laughs) proud of myself. Like, they're really good. Be a whole other skill, definitely. (laughs) Oh, so we've just been setting the world to rights, but we won't do that now. You'll be glad to hear. But did you know that if you Google Josie Long, one of the very first things that comes up is, is Josie Long related to Janice Long? No, I didn't because I don't dare Google myself because I just know that therein lies pain. But I'm not. Isn't that sad? I'd love to be related to Janice Long. It's not like you've got a really obscure surname, is it? I feel like it's just quite a bland surname. Mine too. Back at you. Just like normal. Yeah, no. Ordinary kid name. Yeah, sure. Which is what I've been trying to do with my kids is do the opposite. And I've inadvertently, especially one of them, given her a lifetime of correcting people on the pronunciation. Oh, God, have you appled her? No. So here's the thing. I thought to myself, I will give her a name that is a recognisable name, but that is unusual and beautiful. And it turns out the name I think I'm giving her and the name everyone else reads when they see that name are different. And so I have to be like, oh, yeah, it's like that, but we say it differently. And I just seem like an absolute arsehole everywhere I go. You're going to have to tell me that after, tell me what it is afterwards. I'm trying to keep her and her sister private. Is this the oldest one? Yeah, yeah, the big one. I've got two. It's funny because she's four and a half, but I'm like the big one. She's really big. (laughs) She's got her own life. Huge. Oh, so what is like Josie Long mum? I think I really like this bit. I like playing. I'm very 
at ease with playing with my kids. I enjoy it. I feel very connected to them. I'm quite anxious about things I try not to worry about, but I worry all the time that I'm not doing a good enough job or that my children will encounter problems, which they will because that's life. But I'm like, no, never. (laughs) I'm tired. I'm too tired. Both my kids have been terrible sleepers. So I feel like when my little one finally starts sleeping through, I'll become a different person again. But at the moment, I'm just like trying to get through every day. Also, I have ADHD and I am still not taking medication because I'm still feeding my daughter, like breastfeeding my daughter. And that is very frustrating because I know there's a better version of me that is over the horizon. Somewhere. So you were only recently diagnosed with ADHD, weren't you? Yeah, a couple of years ago. In lockdown. Yeah. What spurred the diagnosis? Well, it's really funny because I wrote a stand-up show about it and I was really like, when I go to Edinburgh, I'm going to blow people's minds. And then it turns out basically every comedian had the same experience because all of us... Loads of people have got ADHD. It's the comedian's... Yeah, but it, it makes perfect sense because you're making like connections with your brain you're thinking about different maybe unconnected things and trying to put them together and you're trying to think on your feet and stuff but also it's just funny too because it's like people like me have real trouble getting up in the morning always and so people always go as a parent they're like you'll get used to the mornings and I'm like I'm five years in and I'm not used to the mornings I will never be used to the morning no never people and people like by the time they're teenagers you won't be able to sleep in and I'm like just watch me just yeah. I won't be doing it. I'll but, be um, them. Yeah, basically, I think during the pandemic, all of the support structures that people put in place to function. So for me, gigging, it gives me dopamine, it gives me deadlines, it gives me a sort of clear way to function. And it's still not like my best level functioning. The amount of opportunities that I've not followed up on, not finished off, missed, misunderstood, been too weird for, been too awkward for, (laughs) have been massive. But at the same time, I had something that worked enough for me that meant I could function and could thrive in some ways. And then to have all the gigs taken away and for the stress of the pandemic and the fear for everyone and the sadness of it, all of that, it was just like debilitating. Because I think on top of the executive function thing, you also have like needlessly melodramatic emotional heightened states so it's just too much it was all too much yeah and so basically I was trying to write this book that I've got which is short stories and I've been wanting to do it forever and it's got the hardest title to remember in the world oh no that's a worry that's I thought it was really because I don't know what you mean and what you don't honestly I've got a blank spot with it and in my head I have to tell you what I've started calling it in my head I've been calling it inscrutable boys and hapless bricks (laughs) We'll talk about that some more in a minute, but then I could remember it. So, 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 yeah, you were writing this in lockdown and being all late ADHD, but not yeah. knowing. No, and I was trying so hard to write it, and basically we got to a point where the arts emergency offices were empty, and I could cycle there, which meant that basically there was a time when rules were very slightly relaxed and it meant that I wasn't breaking any yeah, rules. Yeah, you weren't breaking any rules. No, just no. To make that really clear. No rules were no, broken. No, no rules were broken. <laughs> this isn't even me bending the rules. Like, no rules were broken. And so I finally had a bit of space because we are in this tiny little flat that was like immiserating with our toddler. No space to think, no space to work. I finally could cycle to this empty space, sit there and work. And then when I got there, it was like agony because I couldn't focus and I couldn't get done what I wanted to do. And so gradually it was like, why is this so difficult what's going on and then a friend of mine who's again he's very successful he's an artist and he does comic books and he does like all kinds of beautiful and very successful things and he was like posting so many memes about ADHD like when I saw the things that he was posting I was like 
I can't believe that Instagram is changing my life to this extent, but it really is. I was just, everything made sense. And then I look back through my life and like, when I was eight, I had real massive problems at school. When I was a teenager, it was like I was absolutely acing it. And then I reached this point where I couldn't anymore and it was too much. And then when I got to uni, when all the structure disappeared, I really struggled. And then there's been like loads of times in my professional life and my personal life. And I just look for it and I'm like, it's all fucking ADHD. Why didn't anyone realise this? They just didn't have names for things. So you were just a good kid or a bad kid, weren't you? You were like a swatty kid or a naughty kid at the back of the class. There was never any, why isn't that kid concentrating on? Mm. How do we get the best out of everyone? Yeah, as opposed to like that. writing I mean, people probably off. isn't a lot of that now, but a bit more of it, I hope. Yeah, I hope there is. I think you definitely see a more understanding approach. Are there like coping mechanisms that you know how to use now? Or Yeah, although... Motherhood is a really interesting part of it because firstly, like, there's not much research into how different hormones interact with the brain. I know for a fact that, not a fact, is I know from conjectural experience. Going down internet rabbit holes. (laughs) But basically, like, when I have more spikes of oestrogen, it calms all the symptoms. When I have progesterone, it, like, exacerbates everything massively. And then something for me, when I got pregnant, it was like walking into a fog. And that combined with the sleeplessness and the breastfeeding and all of these things, this combination of hormones, exhaustion, having to do intense focus on a child is really hard going for the symptoms. And then on top of that, the things I used to do to cope were like very extreme exercising, like hot yoga or cold swimming. So it's like sensory seeking, but it's also forcing the body to calm you in like unusual ways. And I just have the time and space to do those things. So the ways that I used to function a lot better aren't necessarily available to me. Gigging every night to get that spike of kind of adrenaline and dopamine, I guess, and focus. So it's been interesting to try to function as best I can without those things. And it's meant that like we moved into a house two and a half years ago and there's some things around the house that I've been meaning to do and just haven't even been able... Like, putting up pictures. Yeah, like they're still impossible. leaning against the yeah. wall. Oh, yeah. they're everywhere. Yeah. And it's, like, depressing. But. We have that too, but I don't have the excuse of kids. <laughs> you moved up here from London, which is a really a big shift. What was it that made you do that? I had been wanting to move to Scotland in a sort of romantic, wistful way for about 15 years. Whenever I went to Scotland, I was just happier. And I was like, why am I just happier here? On top of that, it's like the culture. Like, I always loved the music scene from the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. And, like, the literature and the art and the beautiful architecture and the political history. I just like a real sucker, especially for Glasgow. And, yeah, I've been wanting to come up for about 10 years, but... London is a cult and it doesn't want to let you go. It really is. I think you write about that bit in one of the stories. There's a combination, isn't there, of a sense of London. Basically, it's almost like a cat with a mouse. Yes. Yeah, it's It's toying with you. It's like it toys with you. You feel like if you leave, that's it. You'll be over. You'll never work again. You've given up on some idea of what success means. And people say that to you. Yeah. But it's like such nonsense. I also, without banging the same drum, I always feel like I'm banging. It's like... Bang away. Ref- but it's like reflective of capitalism. The people who get to have a good life in London are the people who, for some exceptional reason, have made so much money that they get to live in a comfortable place. And everyone else is like picking at slim crumbs yeah. and having a horrific time in terms of quality of living. I love London. I think there's loads of wonderful things, but everyone else has a harder time 
because it's a rigged system. It's a brutal place to live. I've been making jokes about it on stage because I didn't realise I was discontented. And uh, basically now it's gone. I'm like, oh, like I thought I was happy, but actually I was like, I wake up, I'm angry all day and then I can't sleep. But it's funny because I do still love it and I think there's so much wonder to it. But like when I first moved back to London after uni, it was significantly more livable for people on precarious incomes. I'm not saying it was easy, and I'm not saying it was easy for everyone, but it was was significantly more livable. Was it kid-related as well? I didn't know whether it was a kind of a taking your children or somewhere nice to grow up type move. In a way, insofar as I've really wanted to move to Scotland for a decade, and I really wanted my kids to grow up there. But also, I love London too, and it's not like I... I didn't think London was a bad place for them to grow up, but I felt like I didn't have the means to buy there. I was renting a place that had, I'm not exaggerating, like plasterboard walls where you could hear everyone that had one and a half bedrooms. I couldn't afford to rent somewhere to have two kids, which is what I was hoping. It got into my bones. I just kept thinking, I don't think I can stomach my kids going to primary school where like half of the neighbours are from really wealthy backgrounds and own these gigantic houses and I'm renting in like this immiserating box and I don't know whether I can not be bitter yeah. <laughs> in that yeah. situation because it, it was just too much I don't know whether I'm just wit- wittering about this no, but, but wit- wittering is fine but I think as well there's that thing isn't there that all those old fashion like lists and things that you're meant to have done by the time you're 30 40 50 yeah, 60 yeah. and it feels like those lists were written like sometime in 1980 when some of those things were maybe possible yeah but they're not possible anymore yeah. for most people. And it gets worse and worse as well. Like when I know people who are sort of 20 years younger than me and when they talk about their experiences of renting in London, it's like renting in zone six with a stranger for thousands of pounds. It's become a rich person city, hasn't it? More than ever. So basically I wanted to leave for loads of reasons, but I honestly, my main reason was I really love Glasgow and I just wanted my life to be there. The culture's great and I just look, I love it. I mean, I feel like... I really belong up here. I feel really comfortable. I feel really at home. That's like Scottish culture is very welcoming, I think. I think people are really warm and friendly and neighbourly. And when I was reading this, I think one of the things that really came through a lot of the stories, they're funny and dark and a bit jaded in places, but overall really funny, and I really identify with loads of them. But there's one of the things that really comes across is the outsider-ness. Yeah. Did you feel... I'm doing that classic thing, which is really annoying that people do to female writers and never do to men. <laughs> Just go, is there a lot of you in here? <laughs> I think there is. But any writer, really, you start with like things from your life and your own like experiences and pain, and then you see if you can write stories with it. But yeah, I definitely think I've felt like an outsider a lot of my life. And when I found friendship and community and communion and like creative collaboration it's been like the most wonderful thing for me and I think it comes probably from having this undiagnosed neurodivergence where like even something as little as being left-handed is so annoying like on such a small level and then when you think about like actual genuine big like ways that people are different from the norm it's like a massive that's a stupid thing to suppose no it's not though because my I'm forcing myself to say the word out loud granddaughter is left-handed and they are still forcing her Oh my god! They are still doing it. But I bring it up because they stopped doing in the eighties. What I meant with that is, I think even the little tiniest differences can make you feel somewhat at odds with society. And then when there's other things like 
you not realising that your brain is different from the majority of people and you trying to function in the world that you don't realise is not set up for you. You do feel the whole time like, why am I, why do I not fit in? Why am I weird? Why do people keep saying in reviews that I'm odd? Why do people keep saying I'm unusual? When I think what I'm doing is very normal or like when I think I'm doing the right thing, why is it not? working or I'm putting loads of effort in but it doesn't seem to be coming across. When did you stop trying to do the right thing? Do it the way that you you should? Well, actually what I would say is with stand-up I've never been able to anticipate what the audience wants. I've only been able to like just write what was in my heart and do it and I suppose the difference has been and it's the same things like politics where I'm like and therefore everyone will connect with it and then I'm like oh people think it's unusual and I'm like but it's not it's just very clear and I suppose what it comes down to is like not realizing that perhaps I had a way of thinking that wasn't neurotypical I don't know but then also maybe that's too like diagnosing myself as well like I maybe I just feel that way because like circumstances in my life meant that like I didn't really have a family unit from when I was about 12 and things Your like that. Your mum and dad divorced then? Yeah, yeah, and it was quite chaotic afterwards and quite difficult. And so there's loads of other things in my personal life that might have meant that. Yeah, there were, like, concrete things that are nothing to do with neurodivergence that I look back and I think that probably would have made me feel like I didn't belong in, yeah. in the world. Yeah, I suppose back then as well, having divorced parents wasn't as common then, was it? Oh, yeah, maybe. Loads. Yeah, I guess not. When my parents broke up, there was a lot of difficult circumstances. And as a result, it wasn't like... I was part of a unit that really got to do much together and I think Mm. I was often the one left out of both of the new units and so I often would retreat into myself, hide, go and stay with boyfriends, go out a lot, go to nightclubs on my own for like days on end. Like I was very much like off on my own as a teenager and I think that it was very influential. And then couple that with like, very intense emotions coming from ADHD. We were like, nobody understands me. And they never will. (laughs) That sort of shit. Yeah. Like the story of forgetting. Yeah, yeah. That story broke my heart. Oh, I'm sorry. It's so exciting for me that you've read my book. Like, it's the most wonderful thing. But yeah, that story's about a little boy and I wanted to write something about people trying to influence children and maybe trying too hard either way, and about how actually with parenting, like, loving, gentle acceptance is the only thing you can work for. But also I wanted to write about how much I hate hustle culture and how much I hate, like, the Diary of a CEO podcast and all that shit. But, yeah, I wanted also to write about the insidious nature of, like, control and abuse and things like that and try and get that all in (laughs) yeah i'm not like blowing smoke up your ass but you do each story i'm basically really fucking jealous because i can't write short stories and each story you manage to create an entire whole life Oh, well, thank you. Just a few pages, honestly. Oh my God, I'm so This is so incredibly meaningful to me. (laughs) To actually fulfil that thing that I always felt was like a part of my creative self is so wonderful. A whole new career. I hope I can keep doing it. And also, do you know what's really funny is as a stand-up, you're always thinking, okay, cut it to the bare bones. How can I make sure it's only really about the joke? And if I put in a line or two of what I feel is more poetic, I have to justify it for massive undermining or something really silly. Or if I put in lines that are dead serious, I have to completely explode it a minute later. And with this, it's just like, what's the story and how do I try and tell it 
as best I can. And that's like amazing to have that freedom to like change it round. It, that really sounds like going from journalism to writing fiction. It's, like, journalism's the same as comedy. It's like you have to tell everybody everything in the first paragraph. Yes. And then when you write fiction, your editor's like, can you just not tell them everything in the first paragraph? God, it must have been such an interesting change. opposite. It's really similar to what you just yeah. said. And allowing yourself to have mystery and beauty and fucking poetry and, yeah, and, and not un- just having to be like... Unravel it. It's such a good opening story. I think oh, it's a really you. good one to start on because it just brings you right into the place. And it's the story about three teenage girls. And it was like, I massively over-identified because I was one of those teenage girls who, you know how teenage girls are always in twos and then there's like this sad third and I was always the sad third? Yeah, me too. And it's like the narrator character just basically being so overexcited because the cool girl wants her to go to her house. And I was like... I mean, I was over-identifying. <laughs> and no, I think maybe I'm you so were. Glad. Yeah, like, I, I think for me it was like, I was trying to write about all these different feelings when you're about between the age of 11 and 13, where you're not really like a sexual being, but a very loving and intense being. And you don't know what's going on with yourself. And on top of that, like, I love the fact that quite often, or maybe it was for my time at that age, you're very witchy. Like you fucking yeah, love yeah, your anything year. spooky or anything like that might mean that you feel you might be able to have a bit of power and have a bit of kind of influence and, and a bit of control and status and stuff. And so it's about these girls who one of them has decided that the way that she's going to navigate the horror that is an all-girls school is to have a bit of mystique about her and, like, to read tarot and, like, to just make up shit, which is the thing I used to do when I was at university. I used to go to college balls and pretend to read people's palms and then just do any <laughs> cold-reading bullshit. But people would... It would blow people's minds because you'd just say, oh, what year are you in? they say, first year, and you say, there's someone you're in love with at home, but you're not sure if you should keep going. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's like, everyone. Like, no shit. Yeah, and then people would be like, Wow! <laughs> But the way I like thought about writing that story, like the tone of it was I went back and I found all my diaries from when I was like 13. And what used to kill me rereading them was A, the absolute desperate earnestness of it. And B, that even now I could see how much I was lying in them to try desperately to placate the mind games and psychological warfare of the situation I was in. Like I would look at my diaries and I'd be like, I know for a fact that person was horrible to me and that person was not a friend to me. So you were literally lying in your own diary. Yeah, and I'd be like, I love them. We had such a great time. And then when I made my first best friend at secondary school, who's still my dear friend now, who I just love so much, and she and I just started hanging out together and I remember this feeling of, oh my God, like she gets it and we're connected and we like love each other. And like writing in my diary, like, I don't really understand it. I just feel really down with her, if that makes sense. Like, we just really, and it was like, so sweet. And also just, it's the same with the little story about the little boy as well. It's like people having a level of self-consciousness where they're like, I'm so stupid, I'm terrible, I don't know why. And it's like that awful kind of anxiety around it. And I think a lot of the stories are about like, people who are anxious and overthink which again is very yeah. interesting <laughs> but yeah yeah I I really enjoyed writing it and it was based on the experience that I had that I that fed into it that's definitely not the story is absolutely a work of fiction but I remember one time when I was about 11 spending a day with a couple of girls I didn't know very well walking through the remains of what used to be a stream or a river in my suburban 
bit of London and just having this day where we felt so free and we were in nature in the grossest way and it just really stayed with me this incredible day where we were like walking in a river because I grew up in the suburbs where we just did not really communicate with nature or have access to any natural environments really beyond there was a wood near me that we used to go into but like a little scrubland wood yeah yeah <laughs> we found a burnt out motorbike which is such a classic thing to find in the <laughs> yeah did you develop funny as a coping mechanism I think a bit but also not I feel like everything is always about three things isn't it so on one hand I love to perform and it was a source of my joy and I've always loved showing off and ever since I was a little kid I loved it and when I went to a drama class it was the first time I was like I love this and my mum had been very supportive in trying to get me to play instruments and I was always terrible and if I ever had to do instrument exams it was a source of like utter dismay and terror And then when I started doing drama, it was like, oh, this is a thing that I like. And when we do the scary bits, I just like it. Like, it was amazing. But at the same time, like, when I was about 10, I was the same height I am now and, like, bigger than I am now. And, like, to have that suddenly when you're, like, a foot taller than everyone else, you're much bigger. And then on top of that, I think now I've got a lot of hypermobility, which means my posture is quite bad. But at the time, it was just like, your posture is bad. Your posture is bad. It was never, like... Why might this be occurring? And so at the time, I was like this big kind of hunched over person compared to everyone else. And I think I just was like, if I can try and be funny, it gets me out of a lot of this. So yeah. But at the same time, I also loved it. And I still do. So it's complicated. Because also, I think my mum was very encouraging of me to perform. But I don't really see that as a bad thing, because I think if I hadn't found very specifically stand up I might never have found something that fitted so well with my brain (laughs) that worked so perfectly for me it's Um, amazing how that happened really and how it seems to happen for a lot of stand ups yeah it must be that you're just gravitated towards it but like loads of stand ups start out as real comedy nerds so it must be that you see that thing and you get it and also maybe it's just that in the history of comedy most comedians have had that type of brain and that's what's necessary for doing it just like most deep sea divers probably have a similar personality or most people who go into and it's society needs all these different brains to do all the different jobs although i would be saying that society does not really need comedians but i don't know (laughs) matter of opinion yeah but yeah A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. But I think many society needs all those different sorts of brains. And I'm sure that like teachers will message me saying, no, in schools now we do X. So I'm saying this from a position of total ignorance. Mm. But certainly when I was at school, when you were at school, like different sorts of brains weren't no. encouraged or cultivated. Or understood, really. Or, yeah. But I think they are like, we went to our local school to get the bearings for when our daughter goes there. And we've got a friend whose daughter is, the parents are both neurodivergent as well. And they were talking about their daughter having a similar sort of vibe. Like my big daughter, I, I, I'm thinking I, I need to keep, just keep an eye on like how she is basically, because probably she might have the same kind of brain as both her parents do. How can I support that? And how can I help her to be happy and thriving? And we did ask questions at the, at the thing and they were very cool about it. They were like, yeah, we understand that. We have pupils like that. We have things in place to do that. And it was like, oh, you know what that is? Obviously they do. I think actually the case now from what I know who my friends who are teachers is that it's very well understood. It's just that the resources aren't there to properly support yeah. people. And people want to support people, but... Turns out cutting all the public services to the bone is, like, difficult. Right. Oh, God, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. How is life in a two-comedian house? It's funny, but not in a good, funny way. No. (laughs) It's funny. What I like is I do think we have a good laugh. My partner's a lot sillier than me, and that can drive me bonkers because I end up being quite like, what is, let's discuss this practical thing. And then his instinct is always to make a joke. And I'm like, let us discuss this practical thing. Oh, he's turned you into the sensible one. <laughs> yeah. Which is, but I quite like I like to plan. I like to plan a trip, do all the admin of that kind of thing. It's fun. I like it. My daughter has started performing comedy shows in the house, which is slightly unnerving. Like the, yesterday night, in fact, she made us sit through a little show she was doing. And in classic, like, ADHD style, she hadn't prepared it. So she was just like... On the hoof with a maraca as a microphone going, what else am I going to do? And I was like, this is oh too real God, for me. You're totally destined for stand-up. <laughs> so you've been doing stand-up for more than 25 years now? Yeah, That's... so much more than half my life. I've had it, and this is the other thing, I've had it in my life since I was 14. I don't know what I would be like without it. I don't know myself without it. It's been there to help me grow up and help me understand the world. Which in some ways is amazing, but in other ways, I don't know what I would have been like if I hadn't have done it. I don't know whether there's another career that would have worked or not. It's wild. Yeah. It is amazing that you found it, the more you think about it. Although a lot of people would say it's terrible that I found it and that I should have <laughs> yeah. done something else. Yeah, I feel very lucky in that regard. And also like really grateful because my mum was the one that like saw that I loved comedy, saw that I was obsessed with it, found that there was a workshop in Beckenham near where I lived in an art centre, which obviously has since closed down, for adults. And she's the one that like got me a little place on it when I was 14, so introduced me to the idea that I could perform it. That's amazing. Yeah, it was really brilliant. I'm so glad that she saw that in me and understood it, because then it meant that I could do it. How has your comedy... Your approach to comedy changed as you've got older because you're like the big 4 now. Yeah, I'm 40. Yeah, do you know what? It's, I like being 40, yeah. But I, 
basically what I think has happened is when I started out as a teenager, I didn't feel fully capable of talking about my home life because there was a lot of difficulty there. And I didn't really feel confident enough to talk about my school life on stage. So the things that I wrote were like fantastical, surreal, silly, imaginative. And then gradually over the past 25 years, what I've tried to do is open up new areas and new ways of writing so that I can make my performances ideally as rich as possible in terms of integrating very personal stuff, intellectual or aspiringly intellectual stuff, like um, political stuff, educational for me, like what I'm trying to learn about that kind of thing. So I like to think that the longer I've gone on, the more things I'm able to talk about. It's so funny though, because whenever I'm talking about my stuff, I think I take myself so seriously when it comes to this sort of thing. And it's just silly jokes. And it's not, I don't know, but I guess it has to matter to you more than anything if you're trying to do a good job. But yeah, so that's what I think. I think at this stage, I'm able to write about how I feel about being a parent, write about my ideas of love and romance, write about politics, write stupid slapstick, write anything I want. And hopefully by the time I'm 80, I'll still be well in doing it. And then I'll be able to feel like I can talk about anything. And my repertoire is like bigger and bigger. Like that's my dream is the longer I do it, the less it's confined to what a joke might be or what a show might be. And the more it's just like, how do I fucking see what I can do? I love that idea of that approach to ageing. Oh, that you're building up. Yeah, that you're building up more and more. And I think it's so easy, because of the way society is, to forget that actually you get bigger and deeper and richer. And Yes, that's how it feels. It's so exciting to feel finally like I have a little bit of perspective and a little bit of, like, wisdom on things. And for ADHD, it's really useful to know, like, okay, I look at that and I know that this particular style of feeling isn't based in reality. And, yeah, the idea that actually when we're, like, 60, 70, 80, the dream is that, like, you have this wonderful repository of experience and understanding and it just gets bigger and bigger. It's like... Wonderful. I love the idea of you doing stand-up at 80. I think about Phyllis Diller. I, like, really love the fact that, like, she was performing in, like, a sleeveless top and she had, like, her lovely, like, old lady wobbly arms while she's on stage. And I was like, that's what I want to be. I want to be, like, this real, like, extravagant, properly, like, embracing what it means to live. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Has it got... It obviously has, but how much better or worse or different has it got from when you started out? Because there were notable women in comedy when you started out. But there were obviously fewer. there's the older ones like Emma Thompson and Dawn French. But then at yours, I suppose Bridget Christie and oh, so Bridget started a lot later than me. Oh, did she? Because I started in 1998 when I was a kid. In my head, she was older than you. She is older than me. Yeah, but she started out later on. But she's still someone I look up to and think is incredibly cool. So, yeah, but like when I first started, there were people like Joe Brand and Jenny Eclair who were a few years earlier who were very established. And then there were people knocking about. I remember in Edinburgh, Sarah Kendall, oh, Catherine Tate, Lucy Porter. Oh, I don't know. Oh, she's brilliant. There were like these cooler, older than me comedians there were a few of them and they were really great and they were doing really well in Edinburgh when I first started going up. But at the same time, yeah, the atmosphere was, like, notably more sexist than it is now. And it's not great now. But whenever I was interviewed, even from the age of 17, the interviews would always pitch me as if I was an outsider, as if I was, like, illegitimate. 
there aren't any funny women, are there? There aren't any female comedians, are there? And I'd be like, I literally am one. Yeah. Or it would be like, why do you think women aren't funny? Or all this shit, so it would, everything. Oh, God. But everything would wall. be undermining you. Yeah, yeah. it would be like, basically the subtext of it all would be, prove yourself, you are bad at your job and you can't do it, you shouldn't be here and you aren't here. And that was like the flack I took because like I was... 24 and I was about the only 24 year old woman out there at that level doing that kind of thing and so it's just constant like undermining undermining and then add that to like internet abuse and shit like that and like inherent sexism of a lot of the people who were writing reviews at that time it was like belittling and a bad environment bad vibes and even though I had friends who were other female comedians and we got on and, and there were people to look up to like I say it still felt like for us just to be on stage doing shit that wasn't horrifically sexist was like a big battle just to be on stage doing our sweet little weird kooky 24 year old shit felt like this massive political statement when it shouldn't whereas what i have seen and especially in the last five years but definitely over the last 10 years has been this opening up of just booking better booking more people and seeing comedy thrive because of it and then on top of that I feel like comedy has grown exponentially as an industry so there just are like so many more voices so I think it is better than it was you would never have an interviewer saying you're a woman comedian what the hell is that which is literally (laughs) what I used to get asked and this isn't that long ago this is the fucking 15 years ago getting shit like that or maybe 17 years ago and you wouldn't get that now you definitely wouldn't but it's still quite clear that the base of power has not fully shifted and the backlashes against it and the different ways that people attack any kind of progress are like terrifying mm. it's a bit of whack-a-mole you think oh that has stopped that particular chain of horrific clubs is closed down oh this person set up a very influential horrific podcast this person has set up yeah so it's like more pluralistic but also at the same time the pushback is more pluralistic and frightening as well yeah like with podcasts you get probably i'm gonna get this in like top five percent podcasts of globally which probably the one you work on is and this one is but then you get the ones that are mega huge yeah they are on the whole rank but everything reflects capitalism this is <laughs> i would die on this hill everything is about that same inequality and distribution of wealth resources ideas where like there would be a tiny minority of people and then everyone else to varying mm. degrees and a tiny little bit in the middle of people who are like able to like make a living live comfortably or whatever who aren't in that top in group and then everyone else like having a hard time i'm obsessed with it i'm like you look at the comedy industry and it reflects society as a whole you look at the arts it reflects society as a whole and a lot of the things that it reflects is how unequal and how full of terrible barriers it all is what about writing for telly because that's like ostensibly a lot better and there are definitely more female characters there are definitely more older female characters but still when i was like thinking about female script writers and female comic writers, I was like, okay, we've got Phoebe Waller-Bridge, we've got Sharon Horgan, we've got Michaela Cole. To be honest, it's been interesting because I feel like when I was younger, I used to go to a lot more meetings and again, hear quite a lot of sexist shit about we've already had one women-led show, so we won't have another one, like stuff like that was like very intense and quite painful. But what I would say within comedy, and it's not been me benefiting from this, but in a way it's everyone benefiting from it, it's in the last five years, I could name you 10 female comedians who've had their own show. That's fucking incredible. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Yes. Uh, and also like non-binary comedians, like it's fucking great to see it flourishing. Like 
I actually, when I look at that, and then you look at 2005, 6, 7, and actually just the very fact that women were not being given their own narrative comedy mm. shows at that time. I mean, I'm sure there were the odd few there were, but it, actually I feel like we're in this wonderful thing where finally people are being allowed to make things a little bit. But what I would say is there's probably still so many beautiful things that are being thwarted and there are still so many ways that people are being thwarted along other lines, like along racial lines or because of sexuality and like loads of things like that. It's still completely a closed shop. Well, no, it's not a closed shop and it won't always be a closed shop. But I'm sure there's loads of injustice is what I'm trying to say. But I am also so thrilled to see that there have been a lot more things commissioned like to my mind I'm like oh like Rose Matafeo's made amazing shows Bridget Christie's making a show Rosine Conaty's made a show Sarah Pascoe's made a show Ashlyn B's made a show obviously Michaela Cole's show is amazing that was like one of the most incredible shows I'm trying to think I could name you a few more May Martin's show is amazing show that was recent oh god Daisy Oh, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about Am I Being Unreasonable? Yes. Incredible show. Don't yeah, make Absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, when you think about that, the amount of good female led shows have been amazing. So many. And yeah, I'm really excited by it. Do you want to write a sitcom? Yeah, I do. I would love to. I've definitely tried in the past and I've pitched a lot of things, but I've got lots of ideas still. And do you know what's exciting is I think ADHD makes you in some ways like the eternal optimist, the eternal child, or it does for me. Or maybe that's who I am. I don't know. But I do just feel like still quite youthful in lots of ways. I feel like I just will always want to keep trying lots of things. I will always want to see what I can do and see if things are possible. And what is frustrating career-wise sometimes is feeling, oh God, that's shut down or that will never happen or whatever. But what's exciting career-wise is, especially as a writer, you've always got the tools to see what you can make and see what you can do and come up with new ideas and pursue them in unusual ways. And like, that's really thrilling. And it's always going to be like that, I hope. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. mostly going to feel like that. Yeah, I always feel like the point that you stop caring about something that you're doing is the point you should stop doing it and do something yeah. else. The point when you're, like, moaning about it. Yeah. I think about that with stand-up, like... But what's been good about having kids is it forced me to have a hiatus. And it also made the rest of my life so much harder. That now I'm like, stand-up's my beautiful playtime. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's easy. Are you getting to do much stand-up yeah so this year I'm doing a tour for the first time in three years partly due to the pandemic and partly due to maternity and I'm doing it in a different way where I'm doing like one show two shows three shows at a time maximum sometimes taking my kids with me but trying to not be away from the home that much and I think when I was younger I was like cool so this is a thing I have and hopefully I'll do this that the other whereas now I'm like I can't believe this is the thing I have grateful now yeah definitely Although I would have thought I was grateful when I was younger, but I think I was just stressed out the whole time. Yeah. I think it was just all too much for me to understand. Yeah. This is a bit random, but before I ask the questions I always ask at the end... Oh, my God. Ever since you said something earlier, I've been thinking about it, so I just, I've just got to say it out loud. You were talking about how oestrogen and progesterone affects your ADHD... I think so. ...during pregnancy. You really need to talk to someone about that before you get menopausal. I know. Or just literally give me oestrogen straight away but not progesterone no fuck progesterone but I think you do need to have a bit of it but I don't know how to cope with that you totally need to talk to someone about it totally I wonder how I can find out if research is being done what I would love to know is anybody studying this and what are the conclusions people have reached has anybody thought about women with ADHD but as far as I can tell 
pardon me, I don't know how much there is about how ADHD affects pregnancy or how pregnancy affects ADHD, how menopause affects ADHD. And from what I can see, it doesn't seem great. Like none of it. And then your brain really thrives. I wouldn't be surprised if there's no research at all. But if anybody is listening who knows that there is, message me. Oh my God, that would be incredible. Not Twitter, because it's too horrible. Message me on Instagram and I will reply if anybody knows anything about it. Because somebody always knows something. There's always some kind of useful bit of information that comes back. When you were talking about that, I was thinking, oh, that's not boding for menopause. Yeah, it does worry me. It does. But at the same time, I've never been on ADHD medication. So perhaps when I am able to be on that, it might balance that out. I know. I I am nervous about that. I am. Because like with a lot of health stuff, you just see that people have not been paying attention to that because they've either not been interesting or not been profitable or whatever. And that's really depressing. (laughs) You're like, oh, great. I'll just step into the unknown, shall I, guys? There's got to be people who have ADHD and a perimenopausal or have been through it. There's got to be... There might be oh, There will, 100%. Be, yeah. Like, I think about that, like, when I look at my family and people older than me in it, I can see the neurodivergence that's not been diagnosed and that's not been acknowledged. And so it's always been... I don't know if it's always been there, but it feels like it's definitely been there for a while. I, I did a thing when I first got ADHD where I would look back at novelists from, like, hundreds of years ago and be like, they definitely had ADHD. There's no yeah. way they didn't. This person definitely had ADHD, which I don't know how helpful yeah. it is, but it made me feel good. Do you think your mum or dad did? I should be like, no comment, because I feel like both my parents, their view of neurodivergence is possibly more negative than it should be, because to them it was never, like, seen as something that's, like a normal, natural part of the human experience. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I've definitely spoken to my mum about it, but I think she might perceive it as negative if she had it. Whereas I'm like, I have it. Yeah. <laughs> so how could it be bad? Yeah, it's hard. Right. But it's interesting. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I am a bit frightened about menopause and perimenopause because of it, because I think it might exacerbate things. Oh, no, I didn't mean to frighten you. No, 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 but it's good to understand But I think if things. anybody does know, that would be really helpful to know somebody somewhere's got to be doing research on it or like you say at least until adhd and pregnancy which will give you something you can at least understand learn from yeah because like for me it was really like walking into a fog the second time i guess i understood it better but at the same time it was still like seeing my ability to function just go off a cliff and it's not been the case for friends of mine who i think are neurotypical who are pregnant far from it like i've seen people be really like thriving in pregnancy there's a whole that's like a whole research project waiting to happen yeah hang on how old are your grandchildren i have got a step-granddaughter but she's nine okay oh that's good i don't know why i was thinking of that but i was like i've got to know yeah she's nine. Oh, i'll bore you with pictures in a minute i would like when you tell me your daughter's difficult name Oh yeah, for right. sure. And my little daughter has a really easy name and I feel like... Is that oh. a reaction to the difficult name? Yeah, but at the same time, both of them were chosen under the exact same circumstances of we really want to give them a beautiful name that we hope is unusual enough, but still like a recognisable name. You're not going to change it to Jane when they're 18. Oh God, that would be... My heartbreak. I remember when I saw a documentary about kids that all grew up in a commune and in the commune, all the kids had the same surname, Wild, W-I-L-D, because mm. they were wild and free. 
And then they followed these kids as they were adults and all of them were such fucking squares, man. They all got married at 23 and changed their names and were living in little houses in the suburbs of their cars. And I was like, oh no, this is the worst kind of rebellion. Desperate for that kind of like concrete boundary. Convention. What's your emotional age? Oh God, it depends. I would say in some ways about 17, but in other ways I think a bit more mature. It just depends when you catch me. I think there'll always be a part of me that's very melodramatic, but I feel like at least at this age, I'm more aware of it and able to put it in its box. (laughs) Yeah. So I would like to say 40 years old. (laughs) But really? Maybe 17, I don't know. (laughs) I think it's a combination, yeah. Yeah. So give us a book recommendation. So it can be something that you've loved long time or it can just be something good you've read. Oh, oh, do you know what I really loved? It's incredibly popular. Is uh, Fern Brady's book. I think her writing was so great. And it was one of those things where, as a comedian, to read another comedian's writing, you expect often it will just be like, a comedian writing a memoir that's fine. And actually, I was like, this is wonderful writing. I love this writing. Oh, so, brilliant. What's it, is it called Strong Female Character? Yeah. And I just thought the writing in it was fantastic. Just, I can't even explain why it was good. I was just like, it's so good. What advice would you give younger women? Look at, don't hide bad experiences you are having in your romantic relationships talk to people about them because often they might be abusive or unacceptable and if you can understand that and know that you can escape that better I'd also say don't let anyone put you off what you want or what you love don't let anyone undermine your confidence you have to adopt the confidence of the most horrific privileged people but just not the arrogance or the cruelty I really think it's not important or or worth your attention how you look or how big or small you are and I feel like a lot of younger women are quite freed from diet culture but at the same time people are being inculcated into quite a an intense view of how they should aesthetically look and I feel like actually none of that matters in the slightest what matters is you getting the most out of your life for yourself life's too fucking short yeah, life is too short. That's the thing, isn't it? My grandma used to say to me, you've got to never worry what anyone else thinks of you and it doesn't matter if you're really different from everyone else and all this stuff. And now I think, yeah, you're probably neurodivergent as well, mate. That's how you survived. <laughs> yeah. But, like, yeah. it was hard to take that to heart. Yeah, at least she was saying it, though. Yeah, true. Who's your old bird role model? Oh, nice. Oh, wow. I really... Melinda Gebby, the cartoonist and the writer. Her and Alan Moore wrote, like incredibly not suitable for work comic books together and their partners I think she's really cool and really incredible let me try and think I'm very bad at picking things out of my brain of people like oh Jean Reese. I love the fact that Jean Reese came to prominence in her 70s mm. oh similarly she won the Nobel Prize and she was like do I give a shit I'm, oh Doris Lessing yeah. when she was a bit like great now I've won everything leave me alone I'm 85 <laughs> I've got to get from the car yeah I really love people who are creative their whole lives and people are still producing work their whole lives that to me is the most exciting thing because to me this idea that you can still have that fulfillment and still have that back and forth forever is like that's the dream isn't it yeah I think it's a bit of a cliche but it's probably like endless Pinterest quotes but there's that thing about it's like you don't age it's your brain that does I can't remember it's obviously said much more like poster words sure sure it's in front of a picture of the sea always (laughs) stopping being like interested in doing stuff and making stuff and learning stuff and there's definitely times where you think 
oh, I'm exhausted or whatever. And I think for me personally, like, I started really young and so often I felt old before my time or out of step because a lot of the people my actual age were at a different stage to me or, or were able to access things that I'd already felt had been shut off to me or stuff like that. So it's felt funny sometimes to be like, oh, I'm washed up or whatever. But life brings in you always. And that's the most wonderful thing about, like, writing and performing is you suddenly, oh, I've got a new idea I want to pursue. Yeah. What's your superpower? It's ADHD and it's to do... Oh, God, I'm sorry, I always talk about the same thing. It's because it's quite new for me. What it is, I can hear the first two seconds of any song and I'll know what it is if I've heard it before and that if I've listened to a song I will know the lyrics of the song and it's useless it's so pointless I'm trying to think there's somebody else I've interviewed with ADHD who said something similar similar but different I can remember every advert I've ever seen if it's annoying and pointless I can remember it if it's set to music I'll remember it if it's my life and it's beauty and um, events I will not remember it (laughs) that's the hell of it yeah. Last one, how many fucks do you give? I suppose I do give some fucks. I'm a very earnest person and I want the world to get better. But at the same time, I also don't have time to give many fucks about some things. I'm just like, I don't even notice a lot of things that people care about. If you see my house, you'll be like, oh, this is, you should sort this out. I'll be like, why? <laughs> yeah, I would say I still give some that. I hope that's useful. That's brilliant, thank you. Oh my god, thank you. Thank you for reading the book. Like, it's such a thrill to have you talk about it and understand it. It's amazing. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.